Welcome, everybody, to Connecting the Universe. Author researcher Mike Ricksegger back after a little bit of hiatus here. Uh, I was on the road filming a couple of television shows that uh, you'll see here in the coming months, and then I had the fantastic Paris Icon over this past weekend. So uh, I'm a little bit behind the hate ball here uh, as, as we're going to uh, dive into the UAP hearings. I would have done this one last week, but again, I was on the road and we didn't have a class last week. So let's go ahead and dive into this. So um, there's Tom McNicholas in the house. Uh, let's see, we've got uh, Ann, Tom, I'll need to, um, let me pop up over onto here because I don't know who Facebook user is. <laughs> um, that does, uh, that does happen, uh, that the, the settings will knock out a, uh, uh, the viewer, but, um, all right. So UAP and it's not showing up here. <laughs> Why? Well, I see you're gone for a couple of weeks, and it's Jennifer LeBay. All right, great to see you down there, Jen. <laughs> awesome. So there was a great thing that happened this past, uh, what was it, a week ago now? I don't know. I, I am so just out of sorts uh, with everything. And there's, uh, and there's Nicole Nimoy. Great to see you, Nicole. And that was for the first time in 50 years, we had a hearing. Back then it was called UFOs, now they're calling them UAPs. I'm guessing it's because of the connotation, the stigma that uh, UFOs you know, give, just using that term. So now they're calling them UAPs. Uh, and it doesn't just include extraterrestrial craft or suspected extraterrestrial craft. These are like anything that could be flying around in the air, like mylar balloons and things like that which does happen. So before the show, I did post a class question about, of course, I forgot to put the graphic up here. Uh, we do have graphics and videos throughout the show, uh, throughout the class. So, uh, and Maeve is on too. All right. Fantastic Maeve. Good to see you down there. Uh, it's always, it's always great when Jen brings on Maeve. I, I always find that so cute. Uh, but the class question was uh, what you thought of the UAP hearings. Did you think any progress was made? So Victoria Monday, my co-host from Edge of the Rabbit Hole, or the former Edge of the Rabbit Hole, I guess, uh, said, nope, they are breadcrumbing us. They are wanting to get our attention. All the while we are looking the other direction. Something is going to slip by. Uh, I, I do agree with that uh, to a point, just as I agree uh, with this other one to a point. And that is from Anne Celine. Although I did not watch the stream, the fact it was even held as progress. Think of Project Blue Book when they were denying uh, and Xing the words, all word associated with UFOs. And I agree with that to a point too. Um, it's in, we're going to kind of get into this this evening. It's great that they're talking about it. Absolutely fantastic that they uh, that they held the hearing, that they are discussing it, that they are actually acknowledging there are things in the air that we can't explain. That is a bit of progress. However, like Victoria said, it's bits and pieces, and you can kind of see that they're just feeding us, um, you know, the narrative that they still uh, they, they still want us to have, uh, at least to a point. It's it's gotten to the it's gotten to the point where they can no longer just flat out deny the things in the skies. There's too much technology around. Uh, anybody with a cell phone can capture something in the sky. Uh, and there are people with, you know, far more technology that are capturing even more fantastic things. So, you know, they have to at least admit something. And so this is kind of what it has come down to is that we are at least going to say, we don't know what it is. We're going to get into some specifics here. So, the the uh, one specific I really want to get into, we we're talking specifics, uh, was from uh, Representative Mike Gallagher. We're going to learn some of these names and faces here tonight. Uh, he's a representative from Wisconsin. He's like my new favorite congressman <laughs> just because of this, this bit. So it's a five-minute clip. If you have not watched it, 
uh, yet. You're going to watch it now. For those listening to the uh, the podcast version of this later, you can join us every Wednesday night, nearly every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time on ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Come join the interactive class. Get involved in the discussion. You can watch all the videos, see the slide presentation, all that stuff as we go along. So ConnectedUniversePortal.com for those listening later. So this here I did post to Hunter Road Media YouTube channel. Uh, so you can find it publicly, but I wanted to include it as part of this class. Um, I just, I love the way Mike Gallagher just grills these guys. We're going to talk about some of these uh, different points here. Mr. Gallagher. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for allowing me to join this hearing. Um, I really appreciate uh, the witness's testimony. Um, Mr. Moultrie, as the chairman uh, mentioned, uh, DOD had an initiative to study UFOs in the 1960s called Project Blue Book. It's also been well reported in our briefing and in, in other places that we have more have more recent projects, specifically uh, ATIP. Could you describe any other initiatives that the DOD or DOD contractors have managed after Project Blue Book ended and prior to ATIP beginning? Did anything also predate Project Blue Book? So I, I, I can't speak to what may have predated um, Project Blue Book. I mean, of course, there's Roswell and all these other things that people have talked about over the years. Um, I'm familiar with Blue Book. I'm familiar with, uh, with ATIP. Uh, I haven't seen other documented uh, studies that have been done by DOD in that regard. So you're not aware of anything in between Project Blue Book and ATIP? Not aware of anything that's uh, official that was done in between those two. Okay. Hasn't been uh, brought to my attention. Okay. Uh, additionally, are you aware of any other DOD or DOD contract programs focused on UAPs from a technological engineering perspective? And by that I mean, are you aware of any technology initiatives focused on this topic other than initiatives focused on the individual case inve investigations? I am not aware of any contractual programs that are focused on uh, any anything related to this other than what we are doing in the Navy task force and what we are about to launch in terms of our effort. Uh, same question for you, Mr. Bray. Uh, same answer, not aware of anything outside what we uh, are doing in the UAP task force. So just to confirm, you're not aware of any technology or engineering resources that have been focused on these efforts besides what we've mentioned today? Once again, I'll say no contractual uh, uh, or uh, programmatic uh, efforts that are involved. The reason why I, I, I Qualify it that way. Yeah, let me qualify it that way. I, I can't speak to what people may be looking at in the department. Somebody says, I'm looking at something, I'm looking at something that may Got be it. unidentified, and I, I can't speak to that. I speak to official programs that we have on the record. It's also been reported uh, that there have been UAP observed uh, and interacting with and flying over sensitive military facilities, particularly not just ranges, but uh, some facilities housing our strategic nuclear forces. Uh, one such incident allegedly occurred uh, uh, at Malmstrom Air Force Base, in which 10 of our nuclear ICBMs were rendered inoperable at the same time. A glowing red orb was observed overhead. I'm not commenting on the accuracy of this. I'm simply asking you whether you're aware of it and whether you have any comment on the accuracy of that report. Let me pass that to Mr. Bray. You've been looking at UAPs over the last uh, three years. Uh, that data is not uh, within the holdings of the UAP task force. Okay, but are you aware of the, the report or that the data exists somewhere? I have uh, I have heard stories. I have not seen the official data on that. So you've just seen informal stories, no official assessment that you've done or exists within DOD that you're aware of uh, regarding the Malmstrom incident? Uh, all I can speak to is, you know, what's within my cognizance, the UAP task force, and we have not looked at that incident. Well, I, would say, I mean, it's a pretty high-profile incident. Uh, I, I don't claim to be an expert on this, but that's out there in the ether. You're, you're the guys investigating it. I mean, if, who else is doing it? If something was officially brought to our attention, we would look at it. Uh, there are many things that are out there in the ether that aren't officially brought to our attention. So how would it have to be officially brought to your Excuse attention? Either. I'm bringing it to your attention. Sure, so, this is pretty official. Sure. So we'll go back and take a look at it. But generally, there is some um, authoritative figure that says there is an incident that occurred. We'd like you to look at this. Uh, but in terms of just tracking what may be in the media that says that something occurred at this time, at this place, um, there are probably a lot of leads that we would have to follow up on. I don't think we have resources to do that right now. Well, I don't claim to be an authoritative figure, but for what it's worth, I would like you to look in, into it. And sure. if, if for another reason you could dismiss it and say this is not worth 
wasting resources on. Well um, and then finally, are, are you aware of a document that appeared around uh, 2019, uh, sometimes called the Admiral Wilson Memo or EW Notes Memo? I am, I am, I am not. You're not. I'm not personally aware of that. Okay. Uh, this is a document in which, again, I'm not commenting on the veracity. Uh, I was hoping you would help me with that, in which a former uh, head of DIA claims mm-hmm. to have had a conversation with the Dr. Eric Wilson uh, and claims to have uh, sort of been made aware of certain um, contractors or, or DOD programs um, that he tried to get uh, fuller access to and was denied uh, access to. Um, so you're not aware of, of that? I'm not aware of Congressman. Uh, in my 10 seconds remaining, then, I, I guess I just would ask Mr. Chairman unanimous consent to enter that memo into the record. Without objection. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Appreciate it. All right. There is a lot to dissect there, and we're going to get into a lot of that. And I like Tom McNicholas. A little truth serum leak in the room couldn't hurt. Uh, this is true. And there was a uh, closed session that they held afterward for anything that pertained to uh, sensitive information, uh, top secret information, things like that, which we will touch on a little bit here because I kind of let leak a couple of little things if you kind of read between the lines. Um Thing is, with even with a truth serum link, I think the two guys there, um, uh, Bray and uh, Moultrie, I don't necessarily think that they knew a lot anyway. Um, it, you know, the whole thing about Maelstrom, Project Blue Book, that sort of thing. Okay. So, first of all, um, let's take a look at a couple of these guys. So, Ronald, Ronald Moultrie. Uh, he's the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. Uh, he's the one that uh, he's the one that kind of shoved everything onto Bray because he couldn't answer the the question. Bray was the Department of uh, Navy Intelligence, and so these two guys are the representatives of these departments that are supposed to be up to snuff on on all of these things. So, um, you know, Moultrie talked about you know, not knowing of anything before Blue Book and nothing between Blue Book and ATIP, which is quite odd and unusual um, for, for somebody in that position to to not know some, some basics. So, all right, real quick, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get into Project Blue Book. And, uh, oh, that's from the television show with Aiden Gillen. <laughs> so Project Blue Book uh, ended about 50 years ago. That's the, the famous uh, government uh, investigation with mostly by the Air Force. Um, ran from 1952 to 1969. That's uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. He was a civilian that they brought into uh, to research this. And originally he was a skeptic. He did not believe in UFOs. But over time, there were enough cases out there that couldn't be explained that he sold himself on it uh, over time. Uh, To this day, there are over 700 unanswered cases from Project Blue Book. Now, there were close to 13,000 cases that they dealt with, which is a lot. And they're able to debunk many of them. But 701, I believe, is the actual number, are still open to this day. And these current task force are, are not addressing those cases. Uh, prior to Blue Book was uh, Operation Grudge from 1949 to 1951 and Operation Sign, uh, which predated that from 47 to 49. So uh, really around the time of the Roswell incident, you had these uh, organizations that were started up to look into this phenomenon. Uh, these are the ones that that predated Blue Book and it kind of rolled right into it. So in those uh, those organizations actually still have some open cases as well. I get that it's a little hard to uh, look into you know cases from so long ago. The problem that I have is they don't get acknowledged. Like we had the uh, UAP disclosure document last year, which is really kind of the precursor to to this meeting that they had uh, last week. And in that, they started their research basically from the early 2000s. And they did acknowledge that there were cases that they could not explain. 
But again, not acknowledging anything that happened beforehand. It's almost like um, they're just kind of disregarding all of that. Uh, when it comes to what Gallagher was asking, what about between Blue Book and ATIP? ATIP is kind of the, the newer organization that was looking into this. And there's a lot that happened during that time. So, you know, you, you see the evasiveness as they were kind of dancing around some of these different questions uh, as, sorry, my notes are kind of all over the place because I, I just, again, <laughs> I've been kind of behind the eight ball here for, for two weeks. Uh, but where Moultrie was talking about uh, not aware of any contractual programs. So it's kind of, if you read between the lines there, there's programs out there, but we're not going to talk about them. So the other, uh, the other player in the, the room, well, there are several players, and we'll get into some of these other ones, um, was Andre Carson, uh, representative from Indiana. He was the, the chair. And uh, we'll get into some of these different things that were kind of uh, said along the way. Um, now, the organization that they have created here recently it's called the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. Leave it to the government to come up with a crazy long title. They call it AIMSOG, which to me sounds a little bit like INGSOG from 1984. Uh, so legislation to create this uh, group was passed in December. They're still looking, well, at the time this meeting started, uh, they were they were under the impression that they were still looking for a director. So, and that was something that Carson was like really emphasizing was like, you guys have had this organization now for five months. You don't have a director yet. And he was also emphasizing that this is the third attempt at this, this group. Okay. This is the third group that they've created to try to address these different things. So let's get it right this time. He was uh, pushing to ask them, you know, you guys don't have a director yet. And Moultrie finally admitted, well, you know, we just put a director in place, but they didn't state who. So I don't know if in the past week they've actually answered that one. Um, I, I'll have to get into that again, uh, a little behind the eight ball here. So let's get into some specifics here. Um, what Gallagher was asking there about Maelstrom Air Force Base. This was an incident that happened in 1967. Uh, it was reported by uh, Robert Salas, who was stationed there at the time. So basically what happened uh, is March 24th, 1967, and there were 10 ICBM nuclear missiles that suddenly just shut down. Now, during this time, when I say shut down, it's basically, um, you know, they were, uh, they were disconnected and uh, listed as a no-go condition. They could not interact with the missiles anymore. When this happened, witnesses, including uh, Robert Salas, uh, saw a red glowing light. That's what, um, what Gallagher was referring to. So he reported the incident to his superiors at the time, and he's been uh, you know, talking about this for, for decades. Here's his book uh, with James Klotz, Faded Giant, and that's Maelstrom Air Force Base. Um, he was not, of course, the only person that witnesses. Uh, security guards described the red glowing uh, light as saucer-shaped. Uh, and there were warning lights going off, uh, you know, because the, the nuclear uh, missiles became inactive. Uh, Strategic Air Command released a document under the Freedom of Information Act, uh, which did state that all 10, meso, all 10 missiles in Echo Flight at Maelstrom had lost strat alert within 10 seconds of each other, and they were gravely concerned about it. In his DC press conference, this is just last October, uh, Salas presented a recording of a phone call between himself and Echo Flight Deputy Missile Combat Crew Commander Colonel Walter Feigl, where Feigl recounted also receiving reports from his security guards of a UFO hovering over the site. 
So what's important about this, and we're talking about nuclear missiles. There's some sort of unidentified flying object uh, that, in I don't believe in coincidence, red glowing light, missiles suddenly are deactivated. They go off. They cannot be communicated with. Alarms are going off. That's concerning when you're talking about nuclear weapons. So for uh, for these guys that are that are sitting there in this hearing, Bray and Moultrie, to not know a thing about it, um, that's bizarre. So it's like they it's like they were brought to this meeting with a couple of specific things that they wanted to address and kind of pawn off everything else. Um, you know, be very, very e evasive, like no contractual programs, you know, that sort of thing. And there you got evasive many, many times. So Gallagher, smart guy, throws some specifics at them and they can't answer them. And it's like, he's, he's telling them, that, hey, this is your job. This is supposed to be your job. You guys are the ones that are supposed to be investigating these things. And the stance that they were taking a lot during these hearings was not from the whole idea of you know, extraterrestrials and people from other planets and that sort of thing. They were more concerned about, okay, is this a technology from a foreign power that we don't understand? And that's where a lot of times they would throw it back to, well, we'll talk about that in the, in the closed meeting. So, okay, fine. Even if you're taking it from the stance, though, that this might be a technology from a foreign power, if it's disrupting your nuclear capability, that's really concerning. So why these guys didn't even know about it, that, that's why I'm saying that this there is a bit of a sham going on here. Uh, and that is a shame. Sham, shame. See what I did there? <laughs> so the other... Uh, the other document that uh, that Gallagher was talking about called the Admiral Wilson Memo. This is kind of recent here, uh, just from 2019. It's a very, very controversial document. We're not going to get into uh, the whole thing here. But um, basically, it's long anyway. So we'll save that for another day. But basically, uh, there are allegedly leaked documents that detail conversations with a scientist, Eric Davis, uh, and... Admiral Wilson, and purports to reveal information about government UFO programs. So um, Gallagher caught some flack from that. I mean, I say flack, but, uh, you know, basically just over social media for presenting it because of how highly controversial it is. Many people think uh, it's some sort of hoax. Uh, given his position in this meeting, um, it's not that he's trying to say, you know, I believe in this. It's just... Um, you know, it, it made some waves and he, I think he was trying to get cleared up. Hey, here's something that's recent. You guys have recently been investigating these sorts of things. Do you have some information on this to clear the air? Again, they did not. What they came to really to talk about, I think, was to throw us a couple of bones. Let me check the comments here real quick. And um, let's see. Um, yeah, and, and, and like the, uh, the Project Blue Book uh, TV show. Absolutely. And we got one more Facebook user down there. I have to figure out who that one is. Oh, it's Mary Haygood. Okay, great. So uh, what they really came to do was throw us a couple of bones. Um, Victoria in her comment mentioned, you know, throw us a couple of breadcrumbs. True. So these are the two bits that they gave us. Uh, the one on the left, and they're, they're both from video clips, but these are stills from those clips. The one on the left was something seemed small, at least in the, in the footage. Uh, it was a, a jet pilot, and it just like whizzed by in the blink of an eye past the airplane. Now, what was ridiculous within the hearing is they got to a point where they're like, hey, can we actually see that again? And this is our you know, government at work here. And they could not figure out how to pause on that image. It's like they were, they were kind of inching it along and it would just like blow right by it. They couldn't 
figure out how to go frame by frame, apparently. <laughs> they couldn't get it to work. It was ridiculous. It was like a whole five minutes of the uh, of the hearing where it's just like dead silence. And you see the guy trying to figure, figure out the laptop. Uh, so there was that. And they, and they admitted, we don't have an explanation for this. We'll come back to that. I think that's the the little bone that they're they're giving us that okay here's a little tiny thing that you know just and really even when you watch the footage just, you know, the average skeptic is going to be like okay that's so so fast and so small that you know I, I'm not going to give it any credit whatsoever. The one on the right is this triangular looking craft in night vision. And with this one, they said that they um, it was unidentified for a couple of years until they uh, until they kind of came across it again. But there was basically they confirmed that there were drones in the area. And the idea here is that this uh, through night vision technology that this is some sort of reflection in a triangular shape off of this drone. And I think that was thrown out there because there are a lot of reports about triangular-shaped UAPs, uh, many of them. We had, um, who was it, uh, Terry Lovegood on our uh, Edge of the Rabbit Hole uh, live stream show talking about uh, you know, his experience with, with triangle-shaped uh, UFOs. But you see these reports all over you hear the uh, the term TRB three, uh, and these these pertain to a lot of these different triangular craft. Uh, even like the Rendlesham Forest incident, that was a triangular shaped craft in that incident. So it almost seems like they're trying to throw out here, you know, well, you know, here's here's a triangular shaped craft, and you know, we're going to say it's a drone. And again, this is small. This is a small object that's up there. Well, the problem is, is that these experiencers who have seen these craft, they're not talking about seeing something small up in the sky. A lot of these are talking about huge craft with all kinds of lights and, um, you know, and, and a lot of things are going on here. But again, I think it's their way to, you know, we'll give you a breadcrumb breadcrumb will discredit the you know triangular UAPs and then this other one you know it's going so fast and it's so small that you know any skeptic is just uh gonna throw it by the wayside so let's take a look at this one a little bit closer here this what they're calling the, the flyby this little breadcrumb that they gave us and to me it looks kind of familiar. We actually, a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about Alaska's uh, mysterious triangle. We got into some more information about that. Um, it seems kind of similar to this object that Captain Tarachi uh, said that he had seen up in the air. Now, remember, this is uh, Japanese Flight 1628. This is 1986 up in Alaska. And again, take a look at the way this is shaped. Okay, you have a bulbous top and a bulbous bottom with this kind of disc sort of thing through the middle. Almost, uh, I don't want to say an acorn because the uh, there, there's a distinct middle there. But it kind of looks like that at this flyby object at almost an 80 degree angle. You know, like it's been turned 80 degrees clockwise. You see what I'm saying there? And what's interesting is when I was out in Boulder, Colorado, um, almost two weeks ago now, I met up with my good friend, Jeremy Ray. He's, uh, he's involved with MUFON, which is another thing that was bizarre to me. They did mention MUFON right at the beginning of this, but when they were asked about working with other organizations, they didn't mention MUFON. They only mentioned the FAA. We'll get into that here in a little bit uh, when we talk about you know, what they're actually supposed to be doing. So here's this craft from Tarachi. To me, it looks similar if you just kind of 
flip that 80 degrees. Heck, it might even be 85. I don't. I, I, I didn't get out a compass to figure it out. Um, but I think it's very, very similar. Now, this is an incident from 1986. Um, and again... Tarachi was, uh, he was an ex-fighter pilot, had more than 10,000 hours of flight time, uh, 29 years as a senior airline pilot. Uh, he'd never reported anything like this before. He was a stand-up guy. Uh, was near Fort Yukon within the Alaska Triangle. And this incident lasted for quite a while. Uh, you know, between him, a United Airlines uh, plane that was up in the air, the... Uh, Anchorage air traffic control and the military was also tracking it. So the FAA got involved as did the FBI and the CIA and Reagan's science team, Reagan's science team, you know, president Ronald Reagan, uh, they were very, very interested in this report because you had all of this and, and Callahan did a great job. He was, he was from the FAA. And he did a great job of putting together all of the you know, audio from all of these different sources on this incident that was tracked for like 400 miles. And there was something legitimately going on. Well, the CIA came in and just put a kibosh on the whole thing. Like, nope, we're done. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Even though the FAA had... Uh, uh, Callahan had all of this material together, and Reagan's science team was extremely interested. Nope, we're going to shut it down. Now, remember, one of Gallagher's questions was, was there anything between Project Blue Book and ATIP? This is 1986. This is right dead in the middle. And he had all these organizations involved. And these guys up there, nope, we don't know of anything. There was a lot going on during that time. And this is actually a very, very significant incident that, again, was just kind of thrown by the wayside. All right, some of the other things that were brought up during this. So um, you had uh, Representative Winstrup. He was uh, pressing Bray uh, about reports coming in from the civilian sector. So uh, you know, they acknowledge, okay, you know, we, we do work a bit with the FAA, but they're really not taking anything else, uh, from, from what it sounds like. Again, MUFON was not mentioned. What Brace said was we're emphasizing standardizing the reporting process, uh, which would discredit many just casual observations by say, you or me. However, a lot of those casual observations do get reported to MUFON, and you know they, you know they have specifically set up a method of investigating these reports, and that they they train their investigators, you know, and how to follow up, how to um, you know debunk different things. So they have, well, maybe it's not the way that, uh, or not the process that these government organizations have set up. You know, they have a very good process for vetting these different reports. So I was really surprised that MUFON wasn't, wasn't mentioned there, even though at the very beginning, Carson, uh, the chair, had actually briefly mentioned them. Bray was basically just talking, yeah, we work with the FAA, and that's about it because we have a standardized uh, method of reporting. And one of the concerns uh, that came up later on was, you know, well, you know, you're you're really closing off, uh, you know, many of these sightings if you're doing that, um, that if it's only coming from you know, military or government sources, that's a significant chunk of reports that are immediately thrown out the window. Another interesting thing that uh, got put out there was that uh, China has their own UAP task force. Uh, and one of the things that was brought up was, you know, do we share information back and forth? And the answer was basically that, you know, well, we, you know, some of them share with us and we share with some, but there's others that yeah, we just don't. All right. So I want to get into some of these other things that were brought up by um, you know, some of these other individuals. So Raja Krishnamurthy, if I'm saying that correctly, he was uh, Illinois, uh, was asking the question if we'd ever discharge, discharged arms at UAPs. Uh, 
Question was no, but Bray revealed that we've had 11 near misses. It, and we don't know what time frame they're really looking at here. I'm guessing early 2000s, but 11 near misses. Uh, another interesting one that came up was uh, Krishnamurthy had asked about uh, was underwater UAPs. So, or what we would call USOs, um, unidentified submerged objects. And this is where it got interesting. Moultrie said that that would be more appropriately answered in the closed section. They didn't even give an answer for it at all. He just said, we'll talk about that in the closed section, session, which basically tells us, yeah, there is something there with these USOs, these underwater phenomena. Something's going on. They're not going to reveal to the public what that is because it's sensitive or classified or what have you. Uh, you know, could even be, you know, there's a secret, you know, nuclear submarine or something, or we have a secret base hidden down there where something was seen or detected or what have you. So we can't talk about what may have been seen down there because we can't reveal to you these other aspects. And that's kind of the tricky part about uh, this sort of process is that there are uh, specific sensitive items. You know, we don't want to reveal secret technology that we're working on to our adversaries out there. So there's certain things that the government's just not ever going to talk about or admit to because they don't want the world knowing some of these different things that, that we have going on. And it seems like, again, their stance is a lot in that department about, you know, who or what has, you know, what type of technology. And is this, these things that we're seeing, is this technology that another, you know, foreign power has? So USOs, totally closed session. We're not even going to talk about them at all. Um, Again, Krishnamurthy asked about civilian observations, and um, that's, a, again, where they uh, talked about working with the FAA and nothing about MUFON. Um, and, and, and this is where he kind of brought up um, that, you know, it's a bit biased. It's, it's only from the government and nothing from, um, uh, from the civilian sector. And then, again, he's asking if... Uh, you know, our encounters with UAPs have altered our offensive or defensive capabilities. And again, that was saved for a closed session. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, admitting without getting specific that, yes, some of our interactions with UAPs have inspired us to either create new offensive technologies or weapons and or have created new defensive weapons or technology. Specifically, I guess that's going to be safe for the closed session, but um, I think it's at least significant that he pretty much admitted there that, yes, we have, I'm not going to tell you what, but yes, because we've had these interactions with some different UAPs, we have changed some of our offensive and defensive capabilities. So that was pretty interesting. Peter Welsh from Vermont. Um, yeah, he acknowledged that there was other life out there in the universe, which is great to actually have a government official get up there and say, hey, I, I believe that there's life on other planets, uh, which is good. Moultrie uh, did admit that there are government organizations looking for extraterrestrial life. He's probably referring to SETI. Um, SETI's been sending radio waves out into the, uh, out into the universe for, for decades in search of any extraterrestrial life. They claim that they've never really in, encountered anything. Uh, and he also mentioned NASA. Um, so Carson had asked about the process for releasing information to the public and if there was a plan for that. Uh, because we've we've had videos come out here uh, over the past several years. I mean, they were taking some years of some years ago earlier in the 2000s, but they came out here in the last uh, handful of years. But they were leaked. You know, they weren't just 
it wasn't something from the government where the government said, here's a video for you. We we saw a UFO. You know, we, we saw a UAP, the term they want to use now. Um, they didn't just freely release it on their own. It had to get leaked from other sources. And the government eventually, I mean, they had no choice but to admit, yeah, that's, you know, a video from, from the Navy or, or, or wherever. You know, they couldn't deny the video existed because there it is. So I believe Carson was looking for, okay, what's your, what's your methodology for releasing information to the public so that it doesn't have to be done through nefarious means where, you know, you have some whistleblower leak going on or, or this sort of thing. I still think that's going to happen because again, what they released there at the, uh, at the hearing was, you know, it was just fodder for us really. You know, a little quick video and then, you know, we're going to discredit the triangles or at least try to. Um, so it's going to be stuff like that. You know, maybe they'll give us another breadcrumb or two. The takeaway is that they're at least admitting there are things going on in the sky that we can't explain. It's a step in the right direction. I think the younger crowd that's coming in, that's kind of, you know, throwing up their hands and saying, well, wait a minute, stop feeding us a line. Um you know, there's something more going on here, which we saw with with Gallagher and, and some of these others that were asking some some good questions, uh, like Kutha Morty and, and some others. Um, and again, you know, Bray was being evasive, talking about security, protecting sources and, and methods um, that if we were to release information, we have to be very, very careful, you know, that it's not revealing technology and, and things like that. So, and that was really their their big concern with with all of this. Um, some other positives to take away from it um, you know, at the beginning of the whole thing, um, Carson, who was who was chairing it, Andre Carson, Indiana, uh, is full on made. Look, there's all these people that are seeing things in the skies. You know, this is stuff that happens. And again, 50 years ago, they were not willing to admit this. This was all. We're going to deny, 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 deny everything. But technology has come so far now that there's no way to continue to deny that. He also wanted to emphasize that, hey, you know, these people that witness this stuff, they're not, he actually used the word kooks. They're not kooks. They're not crazy. Uh, which again, you know, is another great step in the right direction because 50, 60, I guess 70 years ago, we can go back now, right? Um, you know, if you were reporting UFOs, then you were deemed crazy. You were deemed a kook. Um, you know, most people did not believe you. You know, those stuff that was for science fiction movies and things like that. Um, you know, stuff wasn't real. But I think we've become Hollywood played a really good part in this, uh, where they kept producing, you know, movies about extraterrestrial encounters. Uh, you know possibilities of life being out there in the universe, possibilities of visitors coming to our planet, that the newer generations are very, very open to the idea that it's no longer a crazy notion. And just, you know, you do the math. Um, you know, we are, there are billions and billions and billions of galaxies out there. And there's, I mean, just in our Milky Way galaxy, there's over 300 billion stars. So 300 billion systems just in our galaxy that could possibly, you know, provide some sort of, of life. You know, I mean, a lot of those are not, of course, um, but just taking, taking our galaxy, we are one in the Milky Way. Again, there's billions and billions of galaxies out there. So just doing the math, if we're one in 300 billion here, and you have, you know, billions and billions more galaxies, just, just mathematically, there's going to be life elsewhere, somewhere out there. And so the fact that they're acknowledging this is definitely, definitely a positive. Um, let's see what else we have here as I kind of scroll down through my jumbled notes. <laughs> Uh, if you guys have some questions down there, th please go ahead and throw them in there. Uh, there was kind of a candid moment where Carson did ask Moultrie about his sci-fi interests. Uh, and, and Moultrie 
uh, did admit that he he does enjoy sci-fi movies and he's gone to conferences. He's like, I don't I don't dress up in in the park, but you know, I I enjoy going. So that was a nice little uh, candid moment. Um, all right, guys, I I blew through this a lot quicker than I thought I was going to. Um, <laughs> so again, if you have any questions down there, I uh, would be happy to take them. Um, I can comment a little bit more on um, on that this is the uh, kind of those baby steps uh, of heading down the path of, I don't think we're ever going to get full disclosure. There's always going to be something that it, at least for the next probably several decades, um, there's always going to be something that the government is going to want to withhold from us. And until we get that like definitive first contact that, you know, the ship comes down and boom, they all kind of walk out and say, hey, we're here. Um, you're always going to be evasive. And in many cases, you know, I don't, know if it's a physical craft that you know so that was a question that came up you know are these are these physical that we're that we're dealing with um are they you know what do you want to say you know metal and propulsion um you know, are they gaseous in form some of these could be like some of the lights could be plasma objects um you check out uh andrew collins and uh gregory little's recent book origins of the gods they kind of dive into this a little bit where some of these objects or lights that we're seeing uh could actually be plasma objects and then they ask end up asking the question you know is there life within plasma uh which is which is kind of an interesting take um so Anne has some questions down here which is great uh what is one of what is your ultimate hope for disclosure Two, if you had the opportunity to speak with ETs, you can only ask three questions, what would they be? And three, if you could choose the race of ET you spoke to, which would it be? <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, this could, this is fun. We could do this. Um, okay. Ultimate hope for disclosure is, I mean, I, I would just want full disclosure. Um, again, I don't think that we're going to really get that, uh, at least from our government. Uh, they, and I understand part of it, um, part of it is, you know, they want to secure our, it, it, you know, it's, it's about power. You know, the, the more information that you keep close to the vest, the more power that you have. Um, in, until you finally have that uprising or coup or thing that, or the thing that happens that breaks it. So in this case, the thing that would break it, uh, would, would be, the appearance suddenly of some sort of uh, extraterrestrial life on our planet. You know, something comes down in a ship and boom, here they are. Uh, I don't necessarily know if that's going to happen because I think a lot of the ways that, you know, ETs, as far as extraterrestrial life, travel here, uh, you know, maybe some sort of uh, one projection, two could be some sort of stargate or portal. Uh, we've kind of talked about that in our ancient technology classes that, uh, you know, that using a physical craft, traveling here in a Newtonian fashion, it takes forever. You know, even if you're traveling at the speed of light, can be hundreds or even thousands or even millions of light years. You know, so, uh, it, I mean, human beings, yeah, we're definitely not going to last that long. There, there's other life in this planet that does live longer than us, but, you know, thousands or even millions of years, that's really stretching. So you'd have to figure out some other way to be able to travel. And that's when we've started talking about some of these other means through wormholes, portals, stargates, that sort of thing. So they may not even be using a craft to get here. The craft may be something else. Some of them even proposed that these are time traveling devices that have actually, they're us from another point in time um, or some sort of ultra terrestrial, something that's already here and is using this device or craft to do different things. Um, so if you had the opportunity to speak with ETs and could ask only three questions, what would they be? Um, well, I mean, that's 
is a good question. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, I want to see, I'd be like, you know, show me your cell phone. I, I want to see the photos on your cell phone. <laughs> you know, they probably don't have cell phones, but you know, whatever device it is that they would use to capture images, you know, photographs, whatever. I want to see your home planet. Uh, you know, I, I want to see what an alien extraterrestrial world looks like. Um, of course, I would want to go visit it too. Uh, and then there are just, you know, questions about the universe that I would be really interested in. I mean, I think people are going to want to know about, you know, okay, how do we get from point A to point B, that sort of thing. It's probably not the very first thing that that you ask an alien civilization, like show me math. But, you know, it's it's something that, of course, is going to interest people because they want that sort of, of technology. Um, and, and they want to know how to be able to do that. You know, we want to see these other worlds. And really, I would be interested in their culture. You know, how do they, you know, what's their belief system? You know, we have on our planet all these different religions and systems of thinking and philosophy, you know, all that sort of stuff. What's their philosophy? What do they believe in as far as, you know, an afterlife? Uh, where they come from? What are the origins of the universe? Um, you know, what are their belief systems? You know, how do they... Um, and how do their, how does their culture interact? You know, uh, you know, we have kind of distinct family units here, uh, for the most part, most of our cultures here on earth that might be different on another planet. You know, how, how does their family unit work on, uh, on another planet? I mean, they might not even have family. It might, it might even just be something like uh, hive mind or, you know, something like that. We don't know. Um, our science fiction kind of addresses a lot of those things like, you know, here's a possibility here, here's a possibility there. And so they make a movie out of it and we could see what that possibility might look like. So I'd, I'd like to know. Um, and if you could choose the race of ET you spoke to, which would it be? Um, yeah, you know, I find that kind of interesting. So we have all this information out there about these different ET races that are supposed to exist like Arcturians and things like that. Um, I, I guess I haven't really seen proof that they actually exist. You know, they are, uh, you know, stories from experiencers, um, you know, people who have um, been abducted, have given this information, people that have been or have claimed to have been in secret space programs, um, you know, and, and taken to other planets to go fight wars and things like that. This, this is where these stories come from. Um, and I have a hard time with those. Now, we do see in some of our ancient literature uh, things like the Shining Ones or the Anunnaki and things like that. So if those exist, because I have something more to relate to, you know, we see it actually written in our own texts here on Earth. You know, from way back in the day, um, I would want to meet those guys. And I could ask them the question, hey, what about all these different alien races that are supposed to be out there in this galactic federation and that sort of thing? Does it really exist? But I would kind of want to see the ones that this whole thing is supposed to be based off of. Um, so I do believe that you know humans are aliens to here. Uh, that we came from somewhere else because our the way we do things is so far different from every other form of life on this planet. Like we have no natural equilibrium with with other organisms on this planet, um, and just some of the different you know, just some of the different obvious things. You know, no other life form on this planet wears clothes, and uh, no other organism cooks their food. Um, interesting point that was brought up, Josh Reed, a few weeks ago when I was on his uh, show where he was like, you know, think about when we come from inside a house and go outside into the sun, you know, we're squinting our eyes for a while. Look at like a dog or a cat or something like that. When they go from inside a house to outside, they don't do that. They're already, they're already acclimated 
to the planet where we are constantly going through this adjustment. Uh, Tom, uh, do you believe that we have the technology to travel and transport humans to other universes? I believe we have at least at some point. Um, I believe our ancients knew how to do that. And that we see like out in ancient Egypt, that's why we're doing the Stargates of Ancient Egypt tour. Uh, you see that written all over the place out there. And you can see the setup, Hatshepsut's temple is like a perfect setup. You have the little pyramid off on the side powering the thing. And then you have, um, you know, the staircase with the uh, serpents represent, representing energy going straight up into the Holy of Holies where you see all the Stargate imagery back there. Perfectly set up. But other other locations as well throughout Egypt, you see that. Um, you know, you have stories of, and I was just asked this the other day on a podcast uh, about Stonehenge. You know, you had the, you look it up, uh, the story about the the hippies that disappeared within Stonehenge. This is during the 1970s. We used to be able to just walk up in there and they suddenly disappeared. They were, they were camping, if you can believe that. They were camping at Stonehenge. You used to be able to, again, just walk up there and do stuff like that. And there was a blue light and poof, they were gone. Um, so was the uh, it was the circle acting like a portal. Now you think about the condition of it, you know, it's not going to be functioning, of course, as well as it used to thousands of years ago. But maybe we don't again, we don't know what the catalyst is, but maybe it's one of those where it just had a rejuvenating spark and it kicked off and transported them. So I believe we did have that technology. Does that technology exist now? So one of the, because uh, we did a Stargates of Ancient Egypt class, um, was that about a month ago? Because you know, I'm trying to, of course, get people onto the tour. Come come to Egypt with us next February. Um, one of the interesting things that's, that's, uh, that's come about is the is Egypt's Area 51, which purportedly has a working stargate. And you have these uh, historic photographs that have come out of there because there's a there's an old, uh, basically, I guess what it's supposed to be, it looks like a quarry, but it's the base of an ancient pyramid, the subterranean part of it. And there's this uh, oval, it kind of looks like a pool. And some people that have been inside there in recent years have come back out saying it is a working stargate. It has like this kind of kaleidoscope kind of effect going on with it or whatever. And you step into there and you get transported somewhere. Again, that's going to be, I mean, it's an anecdotal story. You have to take those people at their word. Now we have photographs that the, the thing actually exists. It's not working in the photographs, but the structure is there. So are they using it? Um, to travel across the universe right now? Maybe, if you believe that story. Um, I do believe that our scientists are actively working on trying to figure out a way to create a portal or stargate to access uh, other worlds and planets. It'd be a lot easier for just even space exploration in our own solar system. That would make it a lot easier to have that technology in place. So, all right, guys, I really appreciate all the questions. Uh, this was Fantastic uh, to be able to, to finish off the show answering uh, questions from you guys and covering this topic. Again, I would have done it a week ago, uh, but we, we didn't have a class a week ago because I was on the road. Uh, I was in Buffalo uh, just after the shooting. So, you know, my heart goes out to those uh, in Buffalo. But, um, you know, it's kind of one of those crazy, unusual moments like this probably isn't a great time to go to Buffalo, but there we were. And that was, it was a good experience. So, Everything was fine. Um, so we're going to have, at least for the next month, uh, more routine, you know, into our regular uh, into our regular class here, Wednesday nights, 8 o'clock p.m. For those listening later, uh, connectinguniverseportal.com. And then, of course, we'll break for a couple of weeks there into June, beginning of July for the Ireland trip. And I'll let you know when that is coming up. So, all right, everybody, have a great night. Until next time, time really exists.